1: Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get fifty percent off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50 F-I-F-T-Y at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on
0: Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the new books network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Australia and New Zealand Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm the host of the channel, Amir Sayodati. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Jacqueline Leckie about her new book, Invisible New Zealand's History of Excluding Kiwi Indians, which has been published in 2021 by Massey University Press. Jackie is a researcher and writer based in Otapoti, Dunedin. Her research expertise includes health history, migration and diaspora, ethnicity, identity and gender. She has taught for years and has done extensive research in various universities, including University of Otago, University of South Pacific, Kenyatta University and Victoria University of Wellington, among others. She serves on the editorial board and editorial advisory board of multiple journals and her publication record goes back 30 years. Jackie, thanks for accepting my invitation and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Uh, thank you for that very kind introduction, too. Um,
0: I started to show, uh, the show with, with giving, as you said, a very short um, uh, background on your teaching and research, but you've done so much, Jackie, that it's really hard to summarize your background in a way that uh, you know, does it justice. Uh, I think it would be more appropriate if you yourself could tell us a bit about your background and how you ended up as a researcher. <sighs>
1: Yeah, um, well, I'm very much um, a Dunedin uh, a Dunedin person. I'm from Dunedin, and um, I um, have ancestors that, that came here to Otago in the 1850s. Um, and um, I went to a local school, Otago Girls High School, which is in the news at the moment for um, yes. <laughs> some terrible treatment of uh, uh, Muslim students. Um, and I went to Otago University, uh, where I did history and anthropology, which is a great combination. And um, I, um, when I was there, I, I studied under uh, Professor Hugh Macleod, who had done a lot of work on the Punjabi and Sikh diaspora, and uh, also a lot on colonialism. And he encouraged me to uh, do research and to embark on a PhD which was on a history of Gujaratis in uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand until 1945 at that stage. Uh, So I did that that PhD, which took a few years and uh, was fortunate to travel to uh, UK and uh, live in villages in India. Uh, made some wonderful friends, uh, lifelong friends. And um, really since then, uh, that that interest has has continued, Uh, although I've been involved in many other research projects as well. And so after the PhD, uh, I got a job in Fiji at the University of the South Pacific, which is another branch of the Indian diaspora. Uh, And that got me interested in looking at... um, you know, indentured labour and other areas like that. And then I went to Kenya, where there's also another branch of the Indian diaspora, Mm. uh, before coming back to New Zealand in 1989. And uh, I really put aside the research a lot on Indians because I was doing other projects. And it wasn't until about 2004 that... um, I, I, was, I was getting a lot of pressure put on me to write up my dissertation, that happens, and, um, and also to write a history of Indians in New Zealand that was perhaps more general and more encompassing than just the work that I'd done for my PhD.
0: Mm. Um, and is this how this book come about? I mean, there is often a story behind every book. What, what's the story behind yours?
1: Um, well, this book is—it's—it's um, it, a—it's a different, you know, it has a different story behind it, um, and I guess it's really a response to the outrage that I felt uh, right from when I was a young a young person about the history of discrimination towards Asians and later specifically Indians because I was doing research uh, on Kiwi Indians. Um, and I, have, I, have, I did publish some papers on discrimination towards Indians, but they were, they were very, you know, more academic papers. And um, it was only a few years ago that I met up with the General Secretary of the Indian, New Zealand Indian Association, Manisha. And um, she said that they were sitting on a report, which I knew about, which had been commissioned, um, by compiled by Nigel Murphy uh, which which had some of the discrimination that I talk about in the book but the report wasn't really going anywhere it wasn't really written in a, in a, a style that you know you could use in a more sort of public space and um, so she asked me if I'd be prepared to write that report in a different way and to sort of um, flesh it out with stories, uh, human interest stories um, that show uh, the tenacity, uh, I hate that word resilience, but mm-hmm. um, the resilience, but also the way that Indians have responded to some of this discrimination, uh, and so I did, I wrote that, that re- I wrote that report up into, I was starting to work on that, and then I thought hmm, um, this really needs a bigger audience or it needs, it needs a more public sort of airing. And I was also inspired in the aftermath of the um, um, massacres in Christchurch in March 2019, dreadful massacres there. And so I approached Massey University Press and really just put it to them, what interest they might have in publishing the book. And they they ran with it. Uh, so I had a lot of um, free space. Uh, I was not contracted at that stage by the Indian Association, but they were highly supported. Um, and I had a lot of free space to really take the book in the direction that I wanted to. So I guess that's the story behind it.
0: Mm. And uh, b- before we get to the, you know, core focus of of the book, which is exclusion. Uh, Could you give us a brief history of Indians' immigration to New Zealand?
1: Yeah, um, well, that's a very long history, so I'll try and keep it... Yes, please. uh, ...as succinct as possible. Um, Since I did my thesis, there's been some new research has come out, and some some wonderful work that was done by uh, Dame Anne Salmond and uh, also Todd Nackevich, uh, which has shown that Indians have been present in New Zealand right from the very beginnings of European contact because they were working as lascars on some of the ships that came here. And then there's a lot of records which I document in the book that uh, talk about uh, Indians who were uh, some of them had absconded from ships, uh, they worked in the gold fields. Um, They, um, some of them were working as, um, you know, sort of merchants or hawkers traveling around the country selling goods, or they were working in uh, various labouring jobs. Um, And also there were some Indian servants that came to work for a um, British guy in Canterbury in the uh, mid-19th century. So there were Indians here, but it's really at the end of the 19th century that we get the beginnings of what I call uh, the roots of what for many years would be the established Indian community. And these were the people that um, began to, where families began to uh, take root and uh, they began to establish businesses uh, you know, have homes. And these were the Punjabis and the Gujaratis who came out from India, began to come out, uh, these people from the late 19th century. And the way that they migrated, the term that uh, geographers used to use was that of chain migration, nothing to do with chains, mm-hmm. uh, but just the fact that people would send back for somebody to come and join them and, and the country that they'd migrated to. So that was really the basis of what we call the established or the old Indian migration. Um, By the 1920s, there were immigration restrictions. There was an Immigration Act that came in, which made it very difficult for Indians from other parts of the world or other parts of India to immigrate to New Zealand. So that's really when we start to see a white New Zealand policy, white New Zealand immigration policy here. But that act also meant uh, the way the policy was framed meant that the the Indians that came into New Zealand were related to people. They were either the wives or the children of people who had come here before 1920. Uh, There were some Indians that came out, a few Indians that came out as students from Fiji, um, a few others, Anglo-Indians. But it's not really until the 1980s. So that's a big time in history that we start to have um, a change beginning in the demographics of the Indian population in New Zealand. And there were two big waves or two, two waves here. One was uh, a, a quite a large number of Indian, uh, in Fiji Indians that came here after the coups in Fiji. in um, um, in 1989, 1987, sorry. And um, also our immigration law changed in New Zealand and that enabled Indians from uh, the Indian subcontinent from South Asia and also other parts of the world to come here as both highly skilled migrants, but also as guest workers. And that really was a massive sort of um, a massive change to the demographics of the population. And the numbers really uh, substantially increased uh, from the late 1980s onwards. Uh, And then I think the other sort of movement that is worth mentioning is in the 21st century, and that was the number, uh, large number of Indians that came here before COVID as uh, students. So that's that's sort of basically the, the the yeah, the sort of nuts and bolts of the history of the uh, Indian settlement here.
0: Yes, thank you, Jackie, for that. And when did this exclusion that you talk about, the exclusion that has appeared in the title of your book, when did that begin? Was it right from the beginning? Uh, in other words, what's the history of Indian racism or racism towards Indian? Uh, in New Zealand, and um, I, I know this is a long history again. So, if you could put it briefly, and you also mentioned earlier that uh, the about the ways in which Indians responded to uh, you know these kind of inclusions and racism. So, could you talk a little bit about that too?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I think um, I mean partly this is you know if we if we think of the title, which is invisible. Um, It's not just that Indian history, which I've just been talking about, has been fairly invisible to uh, people here in Aotearoa, but also globally, people don't know much about the history of Indians here. I mean, the numbers were small, but it's also that the history of racism and exclusion has been, uh, on the whole, invisible as well. So there's a lot we, we can surmise about, but it's, it's also a lot we don't know about. We don't know what the conditions on board were specifically like for the Lascars that um, were uh, working here way back in the late um, 18th century. Uh, the fact that they some of them jumped ship um, perhaps points to conditions not being that great. We know internationally that uh, these these... Workers were not treated very well. Um, there are a few records, a little, a few records of the nineteenth century, but <laughs> it's not until we start to get, um, we really start to get uh, things appearing in the, in the in the media that we can start to uh, trace some of this history of racism. Uh, and so we can see that by the late. Uh, 19th century, there starts to be a lot of pressure. It's coming up partly in government, but that was to exclude Asians. Of course, Chinese by then were already facing a lot of exclusion, but there were demands to exclude other Asians and people who looked Asian. So this also extended towards people who were called Assyrians. Uh, and uh, Lebanese, there's this kind of hostility. They encountered that as well here. Mm-hmm. Um, they tried to, the government, there were attempts to introduce um, bills to exclude hawking, uh, selling goods, uh, attempts to introduce immigration restrictions. But the big problem with Indians was that they were part of uh, the British Empire and Queen Victoria had issued a declaration saying that she would protect the rights of Indian uh, people in her empire. Uh, and so that made it very difficult legally to exclude Indians or most Indians. It's not until, the ni- until 1920 that the government starts to uh, find ways, there's loopholes that they find to introduce an immigration law that, Means that you had to be of British birth and parentage, and you had to have a permit to come in. If you didn't have a permit, you could be you were you were a prohibited immigrant. So that comes in in 1920, and it's also a result of a building up of I think a lot of xenophobia that we can trace from before World War One, um, and. Uh, we see uh, more and more, like in my book, uh, reproduces some of the cartoons and some of the discourse that was um, evident at the time, uh, which was really pushing to exclude not just Chinese, who already had been effectively excluded, uh, or new immigration had been excluded, uh, but other Asians as well. well. So it's part of that xenophobia. Uh, we see... Um, 1920s, early 1920s, even the Ku Klux Klan uh, having some following in New Zealand. And they specifically um, identified Indians and Chinese as their targets. Um, I mean, they didn't have a huge following, but again, the fact that they were here, I think was very interesting. And then in 1925, there's an organisation that's founded called the White New Zealand League. And that was founded at Pukekohe, which is uh, just was then out uh, outside Auckland. It was a market gardening area with a very interesting uh, race relations sort of uh, history, because there were a lot of Maori uh, labourers working there as well, who faced some pretty terrible sort of conditions. Um, so that organisation was founded in 1925, and they want not just Indians to be prevented from immigrating to New Zealand, but also Indians to. Uh, there's calls for repatriation. There's calls for if they can't be repatriated, for laws to come in prohibiting Indians and Chinese. I keep adding from buying land and buying setting up businesses, and it's that organisation in particular as a response to that that there had been some Indian associations in New Zealand already by then, that they form a consolidated organisation, and they uh, began to, there were some leaders there who wrote some very um, very strong letters in the media, they petitioned parliament, but they did not accept uh, this kind of exclusionary activity simply you know they weren't silent about it. Mm -hmm. Now I could go on and on and on but I don't really you know we don't really have time to and I want you to look at the book but there are other instances historically of attempts to exclude Indians from jobs from accommodation uh, from public houses from hotels uh, attempts to have Indians wearing armbands uh, to identify them uh, preventing them from working as bus drivers in Wellington at one stage. Um, several examples like this. And again, the Indian Association saw it as part of its role um, to counteract this. Um, so there were there was a lot of um, pushback if you like as well. But at the same time, I think most Indian people here just more or less quietly got on with their their, their lives and uh, trying to to earn a living in the face of all of this. Mm.
0: Uh, And I want to add to that list uh, also uh, discrimination in wartime and military that you also talk about the book. And that's a very interesting subject, I think. And and there are similar examples of it in other contexts and other countries as well. Uh, I think the most known uh, perhaps it's the kind of exclusion and racism that uh, African-Americans had to fight against. I mean, they had to fight for their right to fight. Uh, and they were not at first allowed to enlist. And even when they were finally allowed to enlist, they were often given you know, service positions, which was uh, very labor intensive, as opposed to any roles on the front lines, because uh, military re- leaders, uh, I mean, white military leaders believed that they lacked the moral and mental and uh, physical character that was required for uh, fighting on the front lines and their, and their efforts and contributions were not recognized at all, or at least not recognized as much as their uh, white counterparts. So I was wondering how the situation was for Indians in New Zealand in that respect. Was it similar to this or was it different somehow?
1: Um, it's, it's probably, it's certainly... Um, there would be differences but I think the idea that Indians were not suited to fighting in direct combat um, also played into stereotypes about Indians being uh, quote-unquote effeminate or um, you know not you know small Uh, they were you know some were vegetarians many were vegetarians here um So there were those, that kind of discourse sort of fed into it, which would have been very, you know, very different to the discourse that was being, and the rationale that was being thrown about in places like the United States. Um, But they certainly, in World War I, Indians were denied from actively serving in the army. And um, this was kind of crazy in a way, because, you know, we know that India actually... uh, over a million, at least a million um, service people, ser- you know, served a World War I defending the empire. So it, it was nonsense that Indians couldn't fight. And this was also seen by, I think particularly the Punjabi community, the Sikh community, as um, somewhat of an affront because they of their very strong fighting tradition in, in, the, um, in the history of well, their own history, and also the British Empire. So Indians were called up on the ballot. The ballot was operating here in in New Zealand, and many did want to serve, but they were excluded or they were prevented from active service on the grounds that they were not natural, again, natural-born British subjects. And the rationale that was given was uh, that it was difficult to provide the correct diet, Um, weak bodily strength, that they weren't used to hard work, which is kind of, again, ironic when you think that Indians were, you know, one of the main sources of indentured plantation labour in many parts of the empire. This was all nonsense. Um, There's still, I think, a lot of work to be done on these questions. There's also parallels in Australia that are very interesting, Um, But I did find out in the course of my research for the book that there were some uh, Indian war heroes um, that have been, certainly have been acknowledged and were decorated, um, both in the First World War and the Second World War. Um, But generally, um, the idea was that they shouldn't, yeah, they shouldn't be involved in active service. Now this meant that after World War One, um, the, there was this dominant idea, especially amongst returned service men, that Indians had not defended the country and the empire, and so therefore they weren't entitled to jobs uh, that should be reserved for returned servicemen. So it was a very sort of um, you know it was. It's sort of, I find it, you know, it's very interesting to see how that idea of exclusion then feeds into an idea for excluding Indians and other civilian areas of life. Um, And war, fighting in the army is is a really strong narrative in historical narrative in our our country here. So this is is very important.
0: Mm, It is indeed. Uh, But... But these kind of, you know, racism and exclusions that, um, you know, we have uh, talked about so far, uh, they are sort of overt forms of racism. Uh, but what about a casual racism? What about informal racism, microaggressions? Uh, how do you see those?
1: Yeah, well, that's an area that I um, tried to do a lot of new research for the book. Um, it's It's very difficult to do. And I was also conscious of my position as a Pākehā, um, white New Zealander, um, because casual casual racism, informal racism, first of all, they're problematic terms, you know, they're used a lot, Mm. um, but where do you draw the line between something that's formal racism, overt racism and casual racism? And you know, there's been a lot of academic work being done on microaggressions and microinsults and that sort that sort of thing. Um, I think this area, though, and and this is where I I guess uh, my own relationships with um, Indian people, I was able to draw upon conversations that I had, is that this kind of exclusion is often the most biting. It's it's often it can be so hurtful because it's also hard to speak out about. Like, for example, um, if an Indian person is, you know, a joke is made in a workplace situation, um, it's a very Kiwi thing to say, a a very sort of, yeah, Kiwi thing to say, oh, I'm just pulling your leg. I don't mean it. Mm. Um, Whereas, you know, the, the, the hurt has already been there. Um, When people, and I've been guilty of this, when people don't make the effort to pronounce a name properly or they, you know, people are given uh, given a European name because their Indian name is too difficult to pronounce. This is the kind of informal racism that we're talking about. But informal racism also, I think, this is where it starts to get murky like do we you know where do we draw the boundaries because it's also slang terms like turban head and excuse me for using these words uh curry muncher um those sorts of things the question which you know people get asked people who are migrants people of color get asked all the time where are you really from Mm. um And there's a very prominent example, which I've written about separately as well, Sir Anand Sachinand, who was our Governor-General, and a TV um, personality called Paul Henry was interviewing the Prime Minister at the time, John Key, about uh, Sir Anand's replacement as Governor-General. And he was very famously asked, are you going to choose a New Zealander who looks and sounds like a New Zealander this time. Well, what the hell does a New Zealander really sound like or look like? (laughs) That's the obvious question. Mm. When Sir Anand was asked by another journalist where he was born, um, he very calmly said, I've been reliably informed that I was born in Dryden Street in in Lynn, in Auckland. And um, he really downplayed, you know, Sir Anand in his way downplayed this, but I think um, those kinds of affronts are part of what we can call informal informal racism. But there's also areas like when people are excluded from sitting in an area in a restaurant or in a bar or you know, sort of various services, people have said to me, they think that's because of my race or my culture, Um, but it can be very difficult to uh, really clearly identify this and to get any kind of, um, you know, any kind of recompense or, you know, what do you really do about that kind of racism? Hmm.
0: And um, how would you say that New Zealand is doing in contemporary times, Jackie, today? Are we there yet? Uh, or, uh, I mean, would you say there, there has been some progress with regard to you know, racism and exclusion? Or are we still, uh, would you say, upholding racist and exclusionary policies that makes and keeps uh, non-white Kiwis, including Kiwi Indians, uh, as you put it, invisible?
1: Uh, Well, I think um, I'd have to say that although I've I've concentrated in my book on Kiwi Indians, um, there's no doubt um, that racism is well and truly alive here in contemporary Aotearoa. Um, And it's uh, not just towards migrants, but also towards Indigenous people, Maori, and towards Pacifica people, and so many people of colour. Um, I don't need to tell you about what racism is, either personally, I'm sure, or as an academic, um, but we know that racism is is based on an abuse of power. It, it's based on an assumption of abuse and power and privilege that's based on colour. Mm. And it's also based on, I think, on white privilege. Um so we could go into the sort of standard kind of anthropological um, discussion that we've, we've all had about the difference between biology and cultural markers uh, and how this feeds into power. Um, but I think when we talk about Indians experiencing racism in, uh, in contemporary Aotearoa, we're talking about how that difference is conceptualised—it's based on race, but it's also based on the way people talk, their names, what they eat, um, what they wear, um, <clears throat> and that crosses over into religion. As you can, you know, as we know, when uh, there's a, been attacks on—and uh, and this was only just recently here in Dunedin—on uh, uh, Muslim women, because not only do, do do they look different, but they are wearing, their identity is being worn. So I think <clears throat> racism is something that um, is, is obviously very alive. I think there is still much work to do, notwithstanding the goodwill that um, you know, we do have, and we also have a lot of uh, formal ways of addressing discrimination uh, on the basis of human rights. Um, but I think really there's, it's it's something where there's still, we're, we're not there, we're certainly not there.
0: Hmm. Um, there's obviously a lot more in the book, and I encourage listeners to pick up a copy. But before we wrap up the interview, I'd like to ask Jackie whether you're uh, working on something right now, or are you thinking about doing a research on a particular topic in the near future?
1: Um, well, I'm actually <clears throat> writing, a uh, trying to write a book, which is, again, I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in, I guess, silenced stories and silenced histories. Mm-hmm. And this comes from my other research, which has been on the history of mental health in the Pacific. And uh, so I'm working on a cultural history of mental depression. I'm trying to Uh, not just look at, um, you know, standard ideas about depression in New Zealand, but I'm trying to bring in and inflect this with an intercultural aspect as well. Uh, So that's what I'm working on at the moment. And there's also some discussions about some other work, um, perhaps looking at aspects of uh, Indian history here. Mm,
0: So thank you very much. That's really exciting. I, I can't wait to read them whenever they come out. Uh, do you have anything else to add? Any further comments, Jackie, before we say goodbye?
1: Uh, well, just thank you very much for uh, the chance to talk about my book. Uh, also, just to uh, reiterate that I, I feel that uh, the kind of racism that, um, or exclusion, that, that um, discrimination that um, is, is dealt with in my book I feel it's really important that we don't just sort of put this under, you know, sweep it away into into a corner and forget about it, uh, that we don't just pat ourselves on the back, back and say, mm. oh, we're much better than other countries, mm. uh, because that's just a nonsense. And uh, I think, uh, as, as we've seen from recent events here, um, and also... Uh, a few years ago, the the the, the terrible uh, massacre in Christchurch. I think we really need to do more than just say, be kind to one another. I think we mm. need to act on this. Yes,
0: so. I can't agree more with you, Jackie. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for that very important note. And also, thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking with me today uh, about your wonderful work and sharing your insight and your work with our listeners. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you.